So I'm really interested about um, how you... <laughs> oh, I think Robin's cat has muted. <laughs> yeah, he just muted me. Um... <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Reflecting Value, the podcast where we consider the big questions surrounding cultural value in a reflective space. You'll be pleased to know I've learned from my past mistakes and locked my cat out of the room. In today's episode, we're focusing on the question, how do we make the field of culture, health and well-being more diverse and inclusive for those taking part? This episode's guests are helping me to unpick this very question, reflecting on how we may be able to address these issues relating to diversity and inclusion going forwards. And before we jump in, we need to let you know that this episode will feature discussions about racism and hate crime that some people may find upsetting. If you want to avoid this content, the exact times of these discussions are given in the show notes. Within research, it's quite unusual to hear about a project until the findings have been published in a journal or presented at a conference. So I was really excited to have the Culture Box team come and talk about their COVID rapid response project with us. CultureBox is a project which is aiming to understand how arts and culture can be used to alleviate social isolation and loneliness for people living with dementia during times of COVID, especially those from Black and Asian communities who have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic. Joining me for this discussion was Professor Victoria Tischler, Dr Hannah Zalig and Dr Errol Francis. I was wondering, it might sound a bit strange, Errol, but would you mind describing the culture box for the listeners right so the culture box is um it's aimed at people living with dementia in care homes um and its main aim is to provide public health information about covid19 and to promote social interaction through cultural activities i've actually got one sorry it's not um I watched Errol bring up a box with a bright pink cover. From out of the box, Errol pulled out three pieces of paper. One with some written guidance, one with some beautiful botanical drawings of a tree, and one with an outline of an acorn, which could be filled out as part of the exercise. They get get one of these through the post, right, with this branding on it. And then there are... A drawing exercises based on the painting that people can do. I mean, I used to work in mental health facilities and the idea of culture in those spaces was terribly intru- instrumentalised in the sense that it was sort of occupational therapy, you know, or art therapy. Or it couldn't just be for enjoyment. The other thing was a an assumption about what kind of culture they could cope with. So I think that, in that sense of cultural value being a sort of notion about complexity or difficulty or, you know, that works that require some kind of interpretation, we've been trying to challenge that, you know, the the dumbing down of what is provided for this group of people. And I was going to add, that's created some quite lively discussions within the group because, of course, we don't all agree. And (laughs) as Errol said... You know, we come from different backgrounds and some of us have different ideas about what people might want to engage with or what people might find interesting. But something I've learned through my years of working with 
older people with dementia is never to make any assumptions about what people might be interested in or might be capable of because I've my expectations have if I've had them have always been exceeded and I'm always surprised by being surprised constantly by what people might want to do. One of the challenges I'm seeing is when you're bringing together these kind of three areas so you've got the cultural sector you've got health and you've got um, research coming together and how that maybe limits access. So I'm just interested in your take on this evident challenge that we have. I think we're um, we're driven by metrics often, aren't we? So somehow, even though we have a, an understanding that something is is valuable to to ourselves or to other people, somehow we have to measure it. That's something we've been grappling with in the Culture Box project, which is is a COVID you know, a pandemic responsive project. And one of our aims, as Errol said, is to reach out to to different communities and to alleviate social isolation using creativity and culture. And one thing we wanted to do specifically was to reach some of the groups that, you know, don't engage in research, as you said, Robin, and trying to reach people from Black and Asian communities. But we found that really, really challenging. Where, as a team, we're really grappling with what's the best way to to reach people and is it is it an approach or is it that we're not offering the right product or are we not interacting with people in the same way so despite our best efforts you know we've really struggled and again we we haven't quite finished recruitment but we have a largely white british sample that we're working with so i'm just wondering if you could tell me a bit more about the recruitment process what have you adopted to try and reach these communities and why don't you think you've managed to? We've incorporated a co-design process. So we're working with a group of individuals who are quite diverse, you know, including people from different communities, people living with dementia, people from um, BAME communities, um, to, to try and ensure that we're being responsive um, to, you know, to what people would find most, most helpful, most valuable during the, the pandemic. And we're also using... Um, a very iterative um, research approach. We're using participatory action research, you know, which is very much about a dialogue between ourselves and our participants and ensuring that we're able to change the delivery of, of what we're giving to care homes as we go along rather than just offering, you know, deciding on a particular way of offering materials or a particular type of materials. We're trying to be very bespoke and very responsive in the way that we're working with people. Yet still, there's been this challenge and um, I'm not really sure what the answers are. And that's something that as a team we're, we're continuing to discuss. Um, I do know that it's really important to build relationships with people in order to build trust and for people to really engage. And I think the pandemic, you know, it's it's been sort of like a crisis response. We haven't had a lot of time to think, of, we didn't have a lot of time to think about the project when we put it together and we've had to really react quickly so that's that's been a challenge as well perhaps we I would have liked to be a bit more thoughtful a bit more slow but we're working in a crisis and that hasn't been possible yeah it's hard to it's hard to underestimate the amount of thought and effort that we've put into recruitment and thinking about this and and who we've worked with but that's the key really the building of trust and the relational approach we we haven't had time it's a rapid response project and it's been really awkward we, we've all been involved with phoning care homes and asking if they'd like to be involved in this work 
And then by the time we've done that, we've already spoken for three minutes and somebody might have four minutes to talk to us. So for us to then say we'd like to work specifically with these residents or it's actually pragmatically, logistically difficult. Um, but we're also, I'm hoping, going to get the team to reflect themselves. So the research team are hopefully going to collect their own reflections on what it's been like to research at this time. I think we were really driven by the fact, you know, the really disproportionately negative impact that the pandemic's had on Black and Asian communities in particular. And I think it's quite a, a worthy aim that we wanted to respond to, but perhaps unrealistic. You know, people who are in, you know, having all kinds of challenges would have the time or the inclination to participate in a research project. In talking to the Culture Box team, I had a rare insight into the reflections of a research project as it's taking place. What's clear from talking to this team is the complexities that lie in bringing together culture, health and research. Research can be slow at times, but this project has shown how something can be developed and delivered in a rapid way when responding to a crisis. But the fast nature of this project may have meant less time to build trust with people living with dementia from Black and Asian communities. Time and methods of recruitment are not the only barriers in this context, and there may be other elements that stand in the way of more diversity and representation within the culture, health and wellbeing field. So ladies and gentlemen, Grace Quantock. Do you remember those books where you had to choose where you wanted to go at the end of the chapter? Those choose your own adventure novels? Sure, they were badly plotted and printed on that awful pulp paper, but isn't it a compelling concept? The problem is, now we're grown up, and the adventure is actually our life, and we can't flick to the end and see if it really does all turn out okay. I'm here today to talk to you about transforming your challenges, about living well in full colour every beautiful day. This clip is taken from an Ignite talk by Grace Quantock back in 2013, I thoroughly recommend listening to the full talk, which you can find a link to in the show notes for this episode. Grace is a psychotherapeutic counsellor and writer who works across health, social care and human rights. I spoke to Grace to reflect on the barriers that are created within this area for those who have multiple marginalised identities. Thanks so much for joining me, Grace. I wondered whether we could start with a question about research um, and what barriers you think might be created by research and even researchers working in this area. This is something that I, I feel very passionate about because so often I felt um, marginalised communities just get mined. Uh, but under the guise of it actually being for our benefit. There are some conventions of research that I, I struggle with, and this is something I'm working on in my master's at the moment, because, you know, when I spoke um, around the, the ethics committee, I was told, oh, we can't, you can't pay, uh, you can't um, uh, reimburse participants for their time in your research. And I said, why? And they said, oh, because, you know, it might skew the research. But you can uh, refund them travel and uh, you can, like in a non-COVID time, give them a cup of tea and a biscuit. So, so this is fantastic. This is fascinating. So we're saying that my attention to them won't skew the research at all. 
food won't skew the research, travel costs won't skew the research, but recompensing them for their time will. You know, I'd love to see the breakdown of how we found that to be true. But, you know, quite often this was coming from salaried people who were saying that, you know, expecting that somebody will have the capacity to participate in research. And, you know, I get asked to participate in research quite often and I have to turn it down because, you know, I'm a carer, I'm self-employed and I'm disabled. Um, My available time is generally spent working, doing things that I need to do to live and take care of myself or caring for for the person I care for. So actually, if you're asking me to do something in my spare time, what you're asking me to do is go without paid work, to go without sleep, to go without food or to go without necessary things that I need to do to be well. So which one of those would you like me to give up for your research? I'll let you pick. I think that's such an important consideration that um, researchers maybe don't have enough. I keep saying, seeing the term safe space within the literature um, and obviously this means different things to different people. So I wondered whether um, this term is something you've come across within your own practice and what you maybe think about safe spaces within culture, health and well-being. The first thing might be, actually, I don't know how to make them safe because I'm not them and I don't know how safe or unsafe they feel in the world. So in one um, thing I'm working in, uh, because I, I did a, a union-inspired uh, uh, bodywork training online and they had something which I thought was brilliant where there was a, a, a breathing room, a breakout room, that there was a therapist there who would, um, if anybody found the group work activating or difficult at all, there was a room where they could go and sit and process it. And if anything came up from the work that, that needed processing outside, then the, um, the tutors were available to do extra work to process with you. And I just thought, wow, imagine if in, in research there was somebody, you know, who from a marginalised background, who was experienced in holding space or working or doing inclusion support work, who was actually able to, you know, firstly facilitate the space, co-create and design the space, and then possibly to be able to sit within it, and then to have, um, you know, something clear so that if something does come up, because, you know, so many people have stories where we know um, the violence that happens in the niceness of these kind of um, white, heterosexual, non-disabled middle-class spaces. And, you know, sometimes I have been around researching people ugh, have been saying to me, you know, people just, um, uh, they're, they're scared to come in. We just need to make them feel welcome. And I said, I'm so sorry. What makes you think people are scared? I said, well, they're not coming. I said, right, do you think there's a reason for that? I said, well, you know, no, we want to make this wonderful, playful space. I said, hold on, hold on. <laughs> these spaces are great for you, but that does not mean they are great for everybody else. So talking about playful cities, for example. So I was doing some work around this and explained to some people who were kind of asking, you know, how do we get people to engage? I said, I don't engage because it is unsafe for me to engage because those playful spaces are literally the place that I experience hate, crime and attack because I, as a visibly disabled woman, am on view, I'm under that gaze and I'm at risk there. So actually, you don't need, I don't need encouragement, quite frankly. I need you all to reckon with why those spaces are safe for you and not for me and what we're going to do about that. 
So putting something into how we make spaces safer is much more likely to make me be make me to help me engage than kind of assuming that I feel excluded because you know having enough respect to think that actually perhaps I'm not there for a very good reason. Yeah, and I guess this kind of builds on the phrase that you used when you got in touch with us about the podcast that really interested me. Um, you discussed the the wounds that arts and culture can cause, but also the ones it can address. So I was just wondering if we could just unpick that a little bit more for, for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in speaking of this, I'm speaking from, from my personal perspective, which is as a multi-marginalised disabled woman, uh, and I sit at different intersections of marginalisation and privilege. So um, I'm a white disabled woman. I uh, am uh, from a lower socioeconomic background, um, and but English is my first language. So, you know, I sit at, at, at um, multiple points and, you know, I'm really aware that I can't speak to many other people's experiences of it. What I can do is to... Um, speak from the experiences of people that, that I have worked with in, in workshops who have given me permission to share their experiences in this way, anonymised, um, and also um, to, cite, to cite examples from, from my teachers who, who sit at different positions. So, you know, I'm really aware that um, we can, uh, can find shifts in healing and art, and art has huge potential to shift things for us. And at the same time, you know, the other side of that coin is that it can massively wound us. And I think that um, in a rush to basically not look prejudice or, or to fix, fix something, um, which, you know, is a big thing and does need to shift, there can be just this, this, this headlong rush um, into uh, trying to uh, correct um, and that means, and you know, I get asked, um, you know, can you please look at this? Can you please okay this? And I, eventually I'm saying, I'm sorry, what, did did you, you're, you're making something for disabled people. Great, right, I mean, speaking from a disabled perspective here. Right, why? Did anybody disabled ask you to create this? Did anybody disabled create this and wanted some support with it to, to, to work as a, in partnership with you? Um, you know, what makes you think we want this? Where did that, and there's just and so much of it is based on these assumptions. And again, perhaps, you know, this is more in the health sector, but oh my goodness, if I never see another stair climbing wheelchair in my life, I will be so happy. So for me, there's something there around, you know, when people are creating um, for culture, uh, for art, there's a real ask of like, what's happening? Is this co-created? Is this arising from your experience with a community, being of a community, in a community? Or are you actually looking around and going, oh, we're missing, we're missing something? You know, for the best, most, most um, meaningful reasons in that moment, you think, gosh, we're leaving out disabled people. You know, we better do something. And then there's a jump. And I'm really fascinated in what could happen in that space. If we just, as Zara Ash Harper talks about, if we just slow it down, into slow into in slow inclusion and just look what happens in that leap what's going on there
Reese raises some really important reflections here on how the lack of flexibility in research can create additional barriers to participation for people who hold multiple marginalised identities. It's also clear that we have to think carefully about the places and spaces where culture, health and wellbeing programmes and research take place. And we need to ask ourselves these questions that Grace has suggested. Who is it for? Why is it being created? And what are my intentions? So let's take a look at a programme which has used a co-creative approach to support a range of women with different migration circumstances who are living in Leeds. Home. Home is nice cooking. Home is dolma, kuba, biryani, kebab, bihaji, onions, samosa. It is fresh boiled rice. Different tastes. Home, home and love. This is taken from Mafwa Theatre's To and Fro project, which documented the journeys of refugees, asylum seekers and settled communities in Leeds. I spoke with Tamsin Cook, co-artistic director, and Anne Collins, a Mafwa member, back in December 2020, about their experiences of co-creating theatre pieces together. So I'm really interested in the history of Mafwa over the two years that you've been running. Could you tell me a little bit more about why you've chosen to work in this area? Um, what drew you to working with the people that you work with? So Kezia and I met at the University of Leeds, actually. We're alumni um, during our master's study in development and global development, I should say, um, and theatre studies, which is no longer running, but we were the last cohort and it was a really natural partnership because I'd had many years of experience as a facilitator working with lots of different community groups um, and Kez had many years of experience working um, on frontline support for people who were um, well sanctuary seekers, um, people with different migration statuses. So we in 2018 we were finding we started just as a temporary group but we knew that we didn't want to parachute into a community and just leave again we always knew that we had intentions that went beyond the beyond the theater um kind of module that we were working on and Leeds refugee forum we struck up a partnership with them they needed more uh, activities that were just for women um, from the center um so when we started the first session we ran we had about 20 women um turn up into a very small room um and yeah and do you think it's worked with opening the group out well to be honest with you when i firstly i when i just when i was new to mafwa i was not quite sure that what this group is about and i just knew that okay mafwa theater theaters meaning something related to the art and drama but involving myself with the every weekly sessions, then I thought myself, no, this is something really from here. There are different different kind of the doors I had gone through that, which is arts, arts together and opera north. 
and different uh, in the playhouse we used to go to see the different play from makwa theater getting the free tickets involving in different uh, different organizations through makwa so that was quite quite you know like we can i can feel that okay makwa is there yeah every session makwa is there every week they used to provide us a bus ticket so okay the transport no problem for the transport and they were like quite supportive both of them kezia and tamzin so i think yeah we are definitely we draw on the network of partnerships that we that we've created so we you know like with arts together and with um places and spaces in the city and making sure that they're open to us and uh, and mafwa members so for example when we went to the leeds museum leeds city museum i think most people in the group had never been to the museum before um, and just walking up those steps which requires quite a lot of entitlement was something that was really important to people and to perform in that space brought with it quite a lot of kudos um, so kezia and i have written an article for the journal of performance and ethics in theatre it's along those lines i can't remember what the journal title is i'm a Apologies, everyone, um, but you'll be able to find it uh, somewhere around <laughs> if you do a search in your academic uh, institution. So we wrote about redistribution and recognition. So um, for us, collaboration uh, with MAFWA is all about making sure that not only do we recognise voices, um, but we also redistribute power um, and resources uh, and social capital. Um, so a lot of what we do is trying to make sure that um, we are kind of using our kind of um, our education, our status and our background and making sure that MAFWA members have access to everything that we have access to. Um, so that's kind of from an academic kind of point of ethical point of view and what we're trying to achieve. Um, Universality as well as something that is important to us in terms of for the, the logistical stuff. So like everyone who comes gets a bus ticket because if one person needs a bus ticket, then everyone gets one. Um, that's just part of how we work. Um, so nobody is uh, kind of pointed out in that way. Yeah, I think that's a really important consideration. And Anne, I'd, I'd really love to know what, what you feel you're most proud of um, in the things that you've done with MAFWA so far. Well, I can say my most proud of the Transform Festival, which which uh, for me, no, not me and not, not in front of nobody. So that was quite, quite uh, proud for me. And the whole project, when, uh, when we went to Sheffield, that was, uh, unfortunately, I could not go to Leicester, but yeah, I missed that part. But the Sheffield and Leeds City Museum on 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 the map on the map which is already there, and then we did the map and all this. Uh, it was a game master, but that that game was nice, and it was really nice for me. And um, yeah, cooking with Pobin. But unfortunately, we we didn't like that because of the pandemic. We had to go through this lockdown, and we because just be, in February we were discussing about the plays and dedicating the time and you have to do two sessions and three sessions a week you have the, the mafwa was quite exciting we also did in big practice in the in in leeds refugee forum but then all of a sudden the lockdown came so it's all we couldn't do that this year so 
we were really looking forward to do that. But as, as Tamzin said, that we could not do no more. Uh, so now we are also delivering uh, online sessions since um, kind of September. We were really aware that another lockdown was likely to happen. So we equipped people. Um, again, Leeds, the city of Leeds were great. But, you know, there was 100% Leeds Digital we were able to get a grant from. So we were able to equip, I think, eight women with phones um, so that they could take part in the WhatsApp group. And we were hoping that that would enable people to join in on Zooms as well. Um, unfortunately, obviously being a theatre company, we don't have the best IT uh, kind of knowledge. So we um, we had to we've had to get more funding for tablets because the phones that we provided people just aren't up to scratch. So we've done our best, but, you know, we can be critical of ourselves and say, you know, it wasn't, we haven't always managed to pull it off, <laughs> really. I think it's, um, like you say, it's really important to reflect on on these things. Um, so when things go back to normal, how will your experiences in times of COVID change your practice um, and how you think about math work going forwards? I go on Anne would you be able to answer like what you would want from MAFWA like when things go back to a bit of normality and how it might change your perception well to be honest with you here MAFWA before was really nice friendly you can sit together but now because of this pandemic it has affected mind so badly that uh, are we going to do the same though you know you just now now you have automatically when somebody is coming near you oh come on there's a social distancing social so now the it's in the mind there with the mask and the social distancing so you cannot sit when you cannot chat with anybody near you far and make a distance so i i i wonder how would be mafwa after this pandemic but even then we don't know where, when this pandemic is going to end when the vaccine is going to come but it would be quite different to 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 get together again the same way before for me i'm telling i don't know about others experience but yes now or now also for myself when i'm somewhere in the queue and somebody come near me i just i'm just scared okay let me make myself a space so i'm wondering i, I don't know how would be mafwa when it will be back to normal but I don't know i don't know i think Anne raises a really good point there because we are already working in a group um, and that's members and facilitators alike who have uh, mental health issues and we already have a high prevalence of anxiety um, and depression within the group and that is something that obviously the pandemic has not helped with. Um, So it's more important than ever that we are thinking really mindfully about running sessions and I think safe you know, really making sure it was always a safe space and we worked really hard to create a safe space and a space of trust before. And we've also got Nazia, who unfortunately wasn't able to join us today, but she is a um, mental wellbeing worker from LMWS and so that's Leeds Mental Wellbeing Service, I believe. And we have um, kind of introduced Nazia as a familiar face within the group so that they have somebody to turn to and so that it's not just them coming to um, Kezia and I and asking for a referral for somewhere. Um, It means that they can go to somebody who works within um, health and wellbeing and they can get proper targeted, appropriate um, advice and referrals from somebody who knows what they're talking about. So there you go. I think hopefully that answers your question, Anne. So a bigger space, 
really focusing on our well-being within the whole group and making sure that we can all have a cup of tea (laughs) at the beginning. (laughs) Does that sound good to you? Yep. Yeah. (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. So what can we take away from this episode's conversations? I think it's really clear that the ways in which we research the value of culture for health and well-being can throw up barriers for those who hold multiple marginalised identities. And there's so much work that needs to be done in order to ensure that research in this area becomes more diverse and representative. This episode's guests highlighted the value of building trust with different communities and asking questions as to what spaces are seen as safe to different people. And this, of course, requires an emphasis on co-creation and collaboration. But we also need to reflect and take action on who holds the power in these spaces and how it can be redistributed more equally. While there are many examples of good practice when it comes to involving diverse and representative communities in health and wellbeing work, Within research, these nuances are rarely acknowledged or reflected upon. So I think today's conversation is a starting block for further reflection, and I'd be really interested to hear what you think going forwards. What actions can you take forwards in your research or practice to redistribute power and co-create spaces that are safe and inclusive? How might you make your research and practice more flexible so you can develop trust with different communities? What can happen in those uncomfortable spaces if we slow down our thinking before springing to action? That's all from me. Thank you for listening to Reflecting Value, a podcast from the Centre for Cultural Value. To keep up to date on reflections from this episode and to hear how other people have answered these questions, search hashtag Reflecting Value on Twitter. And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. See you next time.